Blog Talk Radio. Pugilistic linguistics, check out the 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 pugilistic linguistics. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Pugilistic Linguistics Show. I am your host, Michael Foster, voice of reason in an increasingly unreasonable world. And I'm back with another episode of the Pugilistic Linguistics Podcast. Before I get started, like I do every time, iTunes. I haven't checked to see any other podcasters' uh, platforms to see why I'm going to check it out. But I know iTunes, you can get all of your old episodes uh, directly here on Blog Talk Radio. Check me out. I'm going to get this done a little more frequently. I'm starting to get my thoughts in order and do this the way it deserves to be done. So this episode, I entitled it Just Us. This is a short synopsis about our trials and tribulations. And I say our, I will include people of color. Not just going to say black folk, but people other than the proletariat, other than the quote-unquote ruling class, our trials and tribulations through the justice system. I have, well, I will be building an episode based on the reparations debate. That is something I definitely want to get my thoughts in order. I don't want to come off the dome on that one. I want to get my thoughts in order before I lay it on you. But I have some ideas. Uh, and this will kind of drift into that territory, too. So these are, these are kind of related. But... I want to talk about our unevenness when we step in front of the judge and the quote-unquote jury of our peers. I will back this with fact. I will inject this with anecdotes. But my intent is to illustrate the differences when we go up versus when others go up in front of, for judgment, let's say it that way. I may be beating a dead horse. But so what? I go back to um, one of my favorite movies. If anybody knows me, I'm I'm a huge black exploitation seventies black cinema fan. Gigantic. I don't care how bad those movies are. There are some gems in there. Some of them are amazingly terrible. But neither here nor there. 
I go back to one of my favorite movies, The Mac, when I talk about this topic. And for those who have never seen The Mac, I encourage you to go see it. Not go see it, but I don't know, Netflix it, DVD it. You know, I'm old school. Hell, I might got a VHS around here somewhere. But anyway, in the movie, the lead character, Goldie, played by Max Julian, was ex-drug dealer, ex-con, current pimp, largest dude in Oakland. He has a brother named Olinga who is a black nationalist. Get our own. I want our, you know, a separatist. Uh, you know, black is beautiful. Black is now. And we're talking 1974. That was a big thing then. That was the Keep Hope Alive, uh, Jesse Jackson, Operation Push era. And this topic hits me the way Olinga brought up uh, during the movie uh, when Max gets out of jail, Goldie gets out of jail, he goes to visit his brother in one of these meetings that he has in the in the neighborhood. And the gist of it all is essentially how do you create a black America within but without white America? I'm not going to touch on that because that's a different animal, but what I want to touch upon in that speech, he said how black people in America were never intended to be a part of the fabric of this country when it was created. So how do you now try to get your own in a country that was never created for you? I'm paraphrasing, of course. The reason this sits with me so heavy is in when I was doing research for this episode, one court case in particular struck me funny. And it's not funny, ha-ha, it's funny. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's back up. Black folk, and we'll extend this to people of color, but black folk, back in the 18th century, after slavery had begun, in earnest in this country, we had begun to address or redress our grievances in front of America's just us system. Now, a lot of this was federal redress. And this is where this country gets strange because there are federal laws, there are state laws, and sometimes they do not overlap. Like sometimes a state law can supersede a federal law, and I, whatever. That's how the country was built. Leave it at that. But the state of Massachusetts, during my research, the state of Massachusetts kept coming up in the late 1700s. They repeatedly, now Massachusetts was a free, a free state, but they repeatedly 
sided on the side of petitioning slaves to remain free, to become citizens of the state, whatever. Massachusetts seemed to be ahead of the curve. So on a state level, Massachusetts was doing this thing. Federal laws, however, always seem to lag behind. The biggest federal law that went to show how we as black folk were to be viewed from this point forward is what's called now the three-fifths compromise to the U.S. Constitution. Now, it isn't, that wasn't a court case. This was something that they all sat down during this constitutional convention in 1787 to draft the Constitution for this new country they were trying to put together. And the three-fifths compromise was a clause, an idea that was input into the Constitution. The gist of it is this. When they were trying to decide how, well, better yet, the census was created by the Constitution, and they were trying to decide how or if we need to count all these black folk. You know, they knew that the ones that came over on the on the Mayflower and they landed on Plymouth Rock and Plymouth Rock landed on them and the whole nine yards you know, we are full-fledged citizens. We got, we got it. But we got a feeling that sometime in the future, because this is really all these black folk that we didn't stole from other lands, they may want to be counted too. So how do we handle this? It went around and round and all this other garbage. And, you know, I read it and I saw it. But eh, long story short, the compromise was every black person that we done brought over here, we would treat them as three-fifths of a human. So in essence, It'll take five of them to make three whole people in our eyes. Now, right there, that tells you everything you need to know about how we are going to be viewed and treated in this country. Right there. Because even though that clause has been, you know, since revoked and all that stuff and whatever... That key principle, that subhuman principle, is pervasive, I would say, in courtrooms all over the country today. That subhuman principle, you are not a full-fledged person. Now, we, they go further. I'll say, so this is 1787. Constitution is ratified. Slavery is still doing its thing in the South, still reviled in the North, whatever. 
this goes all the way. So this is as usual. Until about 1856-7, where a landmark decision came down from the Supreme Court, Dred Scott versus Sanford. So in essence, Dred Scott petitioned the court to become a full-fledged citizen. Now, granted, there's a whole lot more to it. I'm just par- I'm giving it, I'm giving to you, uh, boiled down. Google it if you want to get into the uglies of it. But Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857. This court, this is a Supreme Court decision that came down in response to Scott's petition, and the prevailing opinion was this, from the Supreme Court of the United States, mind you, persons of African descent cannot be, nor were ever intended to be, citizens under the United States Constitution. So the three-fifths compromise counted them as three-fifths human, but they were not citizens. Now, that's a different animal. We'll count you for uh, enumeration purposes or for uh, uh, getting money from the government purposes, but you are not considered to be a United States citizen. Per the Supreme Court, you were not even intended to be. Back to what Olinga said. How do you get ahead in a society that was created with not with you in mind? The society never was created with us in mind. So now we're not citizens. We're three-fifths human. We're not citizens. Then we go to 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. So now we're beyond slavery. That ended in 1865 with Juneteenth. Oh, and as an aside, Abraham Lincoln was not the grand the grand emancipator you think he was. He was not that dude the way you lionize this cat. I submit to you he was just as shitty as the rest of them. But he was more of a pragmatist and say slavery is destroying this country. We must get rid of it. It wasn't out of, it wasn't out of any overriding human rights feeling. He was he was a realist. We got to end this slavery because it's destroying the country. I don't necessarily give a damn about black folk. Because if he did, there would have been more uh, ways to to indoctrinate or to, to include us into society once the slavery is ended. He didn't give a damn. 14th Amendment in 1868 was created to essentially, essentially, free slaves. I'm oversimplifying here. Citizenship, the whole nine yards. If if Lincoln gave a damn about it, he was dead in 1868, but if he gave a damn about it, he would have set up programs to, to, to help integrate the former slaves into American society as a whole. 
Again, he didn't give a damn about slavery. He didn't give a damn about slaves. But I digress. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. We're now, quote unquote, free. We still ain't got our 40 acres in a mule. And I'm going to talk about that in my reparations episode. But we, we, we're loose on society. Okay. But where we're loose on society, we, we're not allowed to be truly integrated in society because white folk got their own thing and black folk got their own thing. And usually the things that black folk have are lesser quality than the white folk have. A lot of the things we do, we did on our own. The reason Alabama State existed is because we couldn't go to the University of Alabama. The reason why uh, Cheney State in Pennsylvania or the reason why uh, Grambling in Louisiana exists is because we couldn't go to the state universities. There's a reason for HBCUs. Because we couldn't go to the HWCUs. But Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, that solidified the concept of separate but equal. The separate but equal provision of private services mandated by state government is constitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. Now, what that says is there's an equal protection clause that says you must give one to, to one that you give to the other. But think about the equal protection clause. It doesn't mandate or doesn't specify the quality of it all. What you complaining for, black dude? You got a water fountain. Yes, outside and down the street three blocks, it's 112 degrees outside, but that's neither here nor there. You got your own. So per the Supreme Court, that's protected. That's constitutional. It didn't say it had to be of equal quality. It just said you got to have one. So let's look into where we've, we've progressed, quote unquote, to or from. Three fifths compromise, three fifths human. Dred Scott said, well, you can't be a citizen. We'll count you, but you can't be a U.S. citizen. 14th Amendment gave us, quote-unquote, freedom. The separate but equal clause says, all right, fine, but you got to stay away from us. All right. Now, there's another one that I stumbled across that I didn't know anything about when I read it, before I read it, I should say. Supreme Court decision, United States versus Bhagat Singh Thind in 1923. And this is why I opened up the people of color in this instance, because this dealt with anybody that wasn't white, basically. This cat, Bhagat Singh Thind, was an Indian, an East Indian chick. 
I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Sheik, uh, S I K H, I believe. Um, his religion. The decision said people of Indian descent are not white, and hence are not eligible for naturalization. So what that basically said is, if you came over on a boat and you wasn't white, you couldn't be a naturalized citizen. You couldn't petition to be a citizen. And the kicker is, the Supreme Court decision specifically said, why? Now, what I've never understand, and some white folk out here, I'm, I'm going to put this on my pugilistic linguistics Facebook page. I need to understand, so what is white? What nationality is white? Because if you came from Munich, you were German. If you came from uh, Castle Cork, you were Irish. If you came from Liverpool, you were British. What's white? But I digress again. So fast forward. That's a background. Got about 10 minutes left. That's a background. Fast forward. We're fast forwarding through a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, Rosewood and Tulsa, you know, Civil Rights, Malcolm, Martin. Fast forward. And I want to stick to this court system thing. That's why I'm fast forwarding a lot of the cultural stuff. I'm not going to just say present day. Let's say 1960s and beyond in the court system. There has been a concerted effort, concerted effort, by the United States government and all of its factions since the 60s to destroy any positive thing that black folk have done. They jump at the negative stuff. They can't wait to get you on some negativity. But the Panthers systematically infiltrated and destroyed by the FBI. The nation, even though they still are going today, back in the 60s, when Malcolm was doing his thing and Elijah Muhammad was doing his thing and before Farrakhan, you know, ascended to power, they were a movement systematically infiltrated and destroyed by the United States government. SNCC, SCLC, King. Martin Luther King infiltrated and systematically destroyed. The, the FBI would send Martin Luther King letters advocating him to kill himself. They would bug his rooms. That's how they found out he had some jump-offs. But they would bug his rooms trying to get things to destroy him personally and discredit the movement. 
That's how threatened America felt about the rise of black America. And maybe this justice system, I might go, I'm, I'm heading off on a tangent I think is very interesting. The kicker is, so we're talking like late 60s, maybe early 70s. You know what, and and don't be wrong, I mean, that stuff worked, that systematic dismantling of our uh, lifelines, our positive leaders in the community, that, that worked. But I submit to you what worked even more then resistance was acceptance. We're, 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 we're mid, early, mid-70s now. Acceptance. I think that was the greater detriment to the black community than anything else. When everything was black as now, black is beautiful, when black is, don't get me wrong, it is. And I'm not saying that from us to each other. I'm saying it from the standpoint of when American society as a whole began to accept black culture. And we got a modicum of wealth. We started moving on up to the east side. the gap between the penthouse and the outhouse got greater. We then had a schism in the black community and it became generational more than anything else. For example, I used the moving on up the George Jefferson analogy. George Jefferson, of course it's a TV show, but it's really on point. George Jefferson worked his way from the story of Queens to the to the east side of Manhattan. He maintained his connection to where he came from. He had a he had a reference point. I'll submit to you as generationally we started having children with that east side mentality. We lost more and more our connection with our Astoria Queens upbringing. So as we started to get accepted into higher society, our connection to where we came from started to get blurred. The penthouse got further from the outhouse. And at that moment, we didn't need COINTELPRO from J. Edgar Hoover. Because at that moment, we became our worst enemy. 
wow, this is a complete deviation from where I was want, wanted to go with this. But I think this is important. A complete deviation from where we started. So now what does that do? All right. Eastsiders have kids. Unless the Eastsiders instill in them a method of here's where you came from and don't forget, the Eastsiders do Eastside things. And on some level, I can't be mad at them for it. I mean, everybody's ultimate goal should be to get out the hood. Don't get me wrong. But the connection is no longer there. The people in the outhouse, in the hood, in the ghettos, in the projects, resent the east siders. Now, I'm I'm not going to say who's right and who's wrong. I'm sure some some blame lies everywhere. But what I am saying is this disconnect, this chasm we've created for ourselves has been the biggest detriment to black America since COINTELPRO, since Hoover's FBI. We're doing it to ourselves. So now let's move into the 80s. The disconnect gets larger. Black society, black culture as a whole is still being accepted into mainstream society. So... Uh, the ones that are being accepted in mainstream society feel a certain kind of way about the ones who live in the hood and, 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 and you know, the graffitis and the South Bronxes and the Cabrini Greens and, the, you know, Gold Coast and Cabrini Green got nothing in common. So you feel a certain kind of way about them. The disconnect gets greater. The crack bomb explodes in 1984, 5, 6, in the hood. Well, the ones that are still being accepted feel no connection to that because they're so far away from the problem. Now, go back to my George Jefferson analogy. George Jefferson might feel for the people in the story of where he came from. But what is he going to do? He's going to hold up on his 12th floor apartment in the east side and not have to worry about it. That's that disconnect. So, And I deliberately say people who are accepted into mainstream society, because understand something. 
you may be the life of the party. You may be the one that everybody comes to. You may be you may be that dude. But you still black. And make a mistake. Do something that your quote unquote friends don't like. And they will not let you forget. That you black. The disconnect. So, so look where that puts you. You move up to the east side. You get a lot of high society friends. You may still keep some of your old friends. I'm not saying that people, I'm not saying that black folk with money are all inherently bad. I'm not saying many of them are inherently bad. I'm saying many of them live their lives and forget where they come from. So look where you fit. You're in high society. You got your friends over here in Astoria, Queens, or Cabrini Green, or Inglewood, or Roseland, or West Pullman, or whatever. You got your folk on the Gold Coast and Lincoln Park and all this good stuff. You do something that they deem unworthy of their friendship, and now what happens? They turn their backs on you. You have no connection to the hood. You have no connection to people who look like you. So now where are you? I bring up O.J. Simpson in this. I am not going to re-adjudicate, adjudicate? I think that's it. Re-adjudicate his trial. Guilt or innocence is not, it's not my calling. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about, though, is how quickly he was out on the island when this whole thing jumped off. Yeah, it's murder. I get that. But what, the gist of it is how quickly his high society friends turned their back on him. To the point to where when this thing all jumped off in 94, he down in the hood on Crenshaw or something going to church. Oh, interesting. O.J. Simpson ain't been black since 1968. But now all of a sudden, when his high society friends have, more, have no more use for him, he, run, he runs back to the black community. I submit to you the greatest threat to black America was acceptance. Now, am I I saying that we should have stayed segregated? Am I saying that we needed to ignore or not try to? I'm not saying that. To be frank with you, I don't have the answer. I don't know what could have been done in the 70s, in the 60s, maybe in the 50s to integrate into society. I'll submit to you that we should have been integrated into society back in the 1860s when you turn us loose and say you're all free now. As a reparation 
Let us help you integrate into society. Let us help you do your own thing. Let us actually give you those 40 acres and a mule so you can raise your own crops and you could, you know, raise your own kids on your own farms and feed you. Let us help you do that. But as you create permanent underclasses by fully funding your schools and underfunding ours, and you do that over generations, when we get to the point to where we start to say we want our own, it gets more and more expensive now. But again, I'll save that from a reparations topic. So bottom line, like I say, man, this went completely in a direction I wasn't expecting. How do we get to the point to where we could, one, begin to repair or fill in the chasm between the haves and the have-nots in our community, and then be able to greater integrate ourselves into society as a whole and not lose who we are? See, this is the kicking part about it. If your family came from Germany, let's say, or Italy or Ireland or any other the any of the other quote unquote white nations that helped build this country, for the most part, they retain their history. Yeah, granted, we don't really we can't really trace a lot of our history back to where we came from. We got an idea. They retain who they are and still function in society. We are expected to basically get rid of who we are, assimilate, not integrate, assimilate into society as a whole, and not be black folk, not be African or or of African descent. And because we have no connection with each other, We jump at the chance. So we need to heal the chasm within each other, within our own community, begin to see each other as brothers and sisters. And then we can fight the external forces. American Society 2019 has made it clear to us that we are not welcomed and we need to go. The problem is we have no connection to each other so we can't mount a united front against that because we're so busy fighting each other. And deeper still, white folk, I'm going to put this on you too, you all don't chant down that type of stuff. 
Everything you do is clandestine. Everything you do is patting us on the back after the fact, man, that was so wrong. Yeah, no shit. But you're supposed to say that to that dude when he's doing it. You're supposed to do that to that chick in the parking lot that calls us, you know, this, that, and the third. You need to do that then. I don't want to pat on my back after the fact saying how badly you feel. You, you, you feel bad about it. Speak on that person that you saw doing it. Chant down your Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving dinner who tells nigger jokes. Then, not after the fact. I'll say to this, everybody in the calls and the struggle with me, I love you. But I'm gonna keep it as I'm gonna keep it as, as real as I can, and I'm gonna get on down. We might pick this up at another time because this is still a juicy topic. The people, and it ain't just white folk; it be green folk, it be yellow folk, it be red folk. The people who pat me on the back after the fact and say how bad that was, and didn't say anything to the person when it was going down, are the most useless people out there. You are absolutely useless. Completely useless. You've got the privilege. You've got the power. You've got the right to say something and have somebody that looks like you actually listen to it. Or shut up at absolute minimum. Yet you choose to say nothing and try to comfort me after the fact. I don't need your comfort. I need an advocate. I need somebody to step up with me at the time of. Because when the police come around, somebody got to do some talking. And I bet you good green money, if me and you stand a united front against some racist ass and they call the cops, you start talking and coming to my side, they'll listen to you more than they'll listen to me. That's how you do it. But again, to back up, black society, we need to heal the chasm in our own neighborhood. Stop buying into the to the dark side that El Chapo and all them cats and your local politicians most likely allowing the hood. And and I see these things on Facebook about uh, uh, don't shop at white businesses buy black owned. You know, prison system is the ultimate white industry. So why the hell are you buying into that so much? And no black folk own no prisons. But y'all dying to get it. I don't know if I heard that. I told I got 90 seconds left. I'm running my mouth too much. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to revisit in my next podcast. I'll get to the justice system, but this, I think, was a little too juicy to, to pass up. So we're going to put a pin in that. Next is going to be the second half of this, and we're going to talk reparations. But until then, 
I want you to start to look at people. Got a minute left. Look to the people who look like you and see them as your brothers and sisters and start to begin to treat them as such. It's hard. I get it. I know. Sometimes it's lethal. We got to do something. So for right now, I'll put a pen in it. I'm going to come back and revisit. In the meantime, I'm going to say like I always do, in my closing, I want you to take care of yourself, take care of your people, because we all we got. Realistic, linguistics, check.